So we are continuing our studies in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And as I said last week, 1 Corinthians 9 is a continuation of 1 Corinthians 8. And in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul's main theme is sacrificing for the sake of the gospel. Specifically in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about all the rights he had as an apostle, right? But he has, you know, given up all his rights. Given up the right to a wife, given up the right to a paycheck from the church. He gave up all his rights for the sake of the gospel. To Paul, there is nothing else more important in the universe than the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul describes himself as a jar of clay. Clay jars, back in Paul's day, were containers, right? Cheaply made containers. Just like, you know, the Amazon cardboard box that our Amazon stuff comes. Right? It's, it's, it's just used to contain things. In it, the, 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 the jar clay, in and of itself, is not important. Paul is describing himself as that, this way. In modern terms, Paul is saying, I am just an Amazon delivery box. That's all I am. What I, my pride, my position, my education, my background, things that used to give me pride, they are no longer important. I am just an Amazon cardboard delivery box. What is important to me, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, is the treasure that is within me. That treasure, Paul says, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel of Jesus Christ is not just a, is not a stale religious dogmatic ideology that we kind of agree to and go on, be on our way. Paul clearly says over and over again in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Thessalonians, Romans, gospel is the power of God. It is the only power that, you know that song, who can save a dying man? It's the, it's the power that saves dying men. Is the power that sets men free. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to racism. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to fallen marriages. The gospel of Jesus Christ is, is the answer to addiction. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power. The two men, I mean, in, in, um, during this you know, pandemic in the last three months, last three months, allowed me to read authors that I don't normally have time to read. And there are two particular authors that I was obsessed about in the last three, that I am obsessed about in the last three weeks. One author is, is a guy named uh, David Berlinski. He is a mathemat- he's, he's a, one of the world's most renowned physicists, right? And another guy is a guy named Thomas Sowell, which I briefly talked about last week. Thomas Sowell is an economist working for the Hoover Institute in Stanford. So really well-known academics, really known experts of the field, both men, atheists. And the reason why I am fascinated with the work of these two guys is that their theories, their, their work, is basically showing uh, of how the scientific community and the intellectual community in the, in the world, that what they are, most of the like especially in the area of evolution and social political theory, these areas are driven by narratives. David Berlinski, for example, says he's an atheist, so by, all, by no means he, he believes in God. 
But he says the problem of evolution is that evolutionary bio biologists just think that the way that origins were, the, the way the species were created was exactly how Darwin said it was, exactly how Darwin wrote about in, like in, in the late 1800s. Even though scientific evidence since then proves the, that there is a lot of weakness to Darwin's theory, modern biological evolutionary biologists just are blind to these evidence contrary to evolution because they're still sticking to Darwin's narrative of how things came to be. Evidence arising over and over and over again of how unlikely evolution is, but the evolutionary biologists, according to David Berlinsky, they don't care about that. They, care, they only hold on to the narrative of what they think how the world was created. Thomas Sowell says the same thing. He says modern political thought, socio-political thought, is, dumb, it is, is written by, contrived by, intellectuals of the 1960s, 70s. And, social, and, and, and this narrative regarding racial relations, income inequality, all these things, he says, are, are derived by these intellectuals. And, and by these intellectuals' narrative way of what life is supposed to be. Thomas Sowell is saying, despite evidence contrary to this narrative, contrary to the narrative of racism and social inequality that these intellectuals advocate. Even though evidence comes out again and again that, 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 that contradicts this narrative, social, economic, intellectuals still hold on to this narrative, even though it's not proven with, with data. Basically, the reason I give you two examples of two of these, men, like the, these two men is that everyone holds on to the narrative of what the world ought to be. Regardless of the, whether that narrative is supported by scientific fact or data or, not, or whatnot, people don't care about what's real. They hold on to the narratives. We are surrounded by narratives. In our minds, we have our own story of what life is supposed to be. Some of us have, some of us, you know, it's an old-fashioned consumerism, you know, materialism worldview where life is really about accumulating stuff. In our heads, we think that's what life is supposed to be. But what the gospel does is it shatters this narrative of what we thought what life, what life was, was. Paul, for example, believed that Judaism Obeying the Old Testament Jewetary laws made him closer to God. He thought Judaism was the true narrative of the universe. And because these Christians fundamentally disagreed with his idea of what life is supposed to be, he had no problem persecuting them. But Jesus, when he, but Jesus by his grace, opened Paul's eyes to see that the gospel narrative is the truth. What is the gospel narrative? Gospel narrative starts with the holiness of God. In the beginning, there was God, and he created the heavens and the earth. The gospel narrative says God existed first. He created all things, and men fell within the context of the sovereignty of God. But rather worshiping God, man betrays God. Man, turn, man rebels against God. 
as a result of his rebellion, the sins that pollute us internally, the sin that pollutes us in, 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 in societies and in the history of the world worldwide, it starts to have, it starts to infect all things. It starts with God, man in God, man betrays God, therefore sin pollutes all things. That is why God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for our sins, so that by believing in him, right, our eyes are open to God. We are, our nature has changed, our, our nature has changed to be in conformity to God. And, and we, are, and, and, and we in, the, in the future, we become citizens of his eternal kingdom. That's the gospel narrative. And when Paul met Jesus Christ on the road to, to Damascus, his eyes was open to the true narrative of God, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once his eyes were open, all his old ideologies that he, that he once thought was right, he knew was wrong, and he began to see that it is only the gospel that changes people's lives. Not religious practices, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is only through the gospel that men can have a relationship with God. Paul believes when a person is persuaded by the true narrative of the gospel, that changes people's lives. There were many problems in Roman society. I think I read an article from the Gospel Coalition of how perverse Roman society was, right? Of how Roman men dominated and, and, and just, it was just a crass, sexually defiled system. How women were marginalized. How children were unsafe. Paul very much knew the social problem of his day. But the reason why Paul preached the gospel solely is because he knew that there is nothing in the world that can change a person besides for the person's eyes to be opened by the gospel. The gospel is everything. That's why Paul ran the race for the gospel. The question we ask ourselves this morning what is the narrative that dominates your life? Do you truly see the world through the lens of the gospel, the sovereignty of God, the evil, the, 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 the evil destructive nature of sin, the rescue of, of the love of God, the rescue of us by God sending us Jesus Christ to love us? and the presence of God in us with the Holy Spirit because of the work of Christ, it is, is it that how you see your life? Or are you sticking to the old narrative of life? When I was younger, when I was Hill's age, I thought my narrative was the gospel. But it wasn't. I thought that I believed in the gospel. But my narrative of life was about the American dream. What I wanted, what I hoped for, what I thought my life was about, was really about having a nice job, nice family, and a, in a nice neighborhood. That was a narrative that I wanted. That's, what I, that's how I saw the world. That was my narrative. It wasn't the relevance of the gospel. Question to you, my, my, my dear friend. 
What is the personal dominant narrative of your life? Is it the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is only the gospel that sets people free. What happens when your eyes become open to the gospel? You become runners of God. You begin to see that this world is a race. Before meeting God, we think that this world was, you know, about our kingdoms, establishing our kingdoms. We think that this world was about, you know, being happy and secure and, 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 and trouble-free. But after the gospel, when the gospel opens your eyes, you begin to see this place is not a place of comfort and eternal security. But this place is a place of, is a, is a race. John Piper, in his, his most famous example, right? John Piper doesn't give a lot of stories, but this is one, this is the most famous story that John Piper, illustration John Piper ever illustrated in one of his sermons. And, they, and, and, and in this story, it, it's about, this example is about two people that he knew. One, one, people, one group of people is a husband and wife, right, that, that he knew. And they were really smart, and they were really smart with their money, and so they worked hard. They retired in their 40s. And this couple, after they retired, spent the rest of their retirement. They bought a boat, right? And they sailed to different coasts to collect seashells. He's, he also contrasts these people with the person that he knew in his church. This woman was a medical missionary. She never married. She devoted her entire life to the mission fields. She died because the jeep that she was on, right, fell off a cliff, and she died when she was 80. Piper is giving these two examples and asks the question, what's the more tragic life? Is a tragic life people who die warm and comfortably in their beds after collecting seashells? Or is the tragedy of life running hard after God and dying. What is a true tragedy? Piper is saying the first life, wasting life, thinking that this life is about comfort and accumulating stuff. That's the tragedy. Running after the things of God, that's glorious and meaningful. Paul is saying, when Jesus Christ changes your narrative, you become a pursuer of God rather than stuff. To illustrate this point, right, Paul uses the example of uh, what you call the Asminian uh, games. Asminian games? In, in the Roman Empire during Paul's time, there were two major, there were, there, like, people were obsessed, like, like a lot of people today, they were obsessed with sporting events. The most popular sporting events during Paul's time was the Olympics, right? Olympics happened, you know, 2,000 years ago when Paul was living. And the Olympics was held in Rome every year. The second most popular, right, sporting event, right, was the Assyminian Games. And the Simeon Games held, was held in Corinth, the very city that Paul is writing about today, right? So it's like 
the Olympics are like, you know, NFL, right? And the Assyrian Games, like the NBA, right? So like, like everyone kind of, you know, like, you know, it's not, Assyrian Games is not as big as the NBA, like NFL, like the, like the NBA is popular, but not as big as the NFL. Similar, but still popular. The Assyrian Games was held in Corinth. So these people in Corinth knew the importance of the Assyrian Games, right? They were familiar with it. The Assyrian Games had maybe like, I think, four major, what do you call that? Categories? Subjects? Events. Events. Four major events. First was the marathon, right? Second was boxing. Uh, third was what you, what, what you call, um, what, what, what do you call this? It's called the pancreation? Pancreation? Pancreation is like the MMA. You can, you can kick, you can, you can box, you can wrestle, right? It's like the MMA. And fourth is wrestling, right? And these, the Corinthians knew, right, what, what these games were because they were all fans of these games. So Paul is using these games to illustrate his point of the fact that Christians should run after the things of God. He specifically uses the example of the marathon and boxing. He says, look, these, look at these athletes, Paul says. Look at these athletes who compete in these games. What, are, what do they do? He says, first, they're really self-controlled. They're really self-controlled, right? Look, that's, what, that's what verse 25 says. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. He's saying for these athletes to compete in these games, they're really disciplined in the way they live their lives. In regards to their training, in regards to their diet, in regards to their sleep, sleep schedule, they live a very regimental life. They don't live carefree lives. All the aspects of their lives are carefully scheduled. They don't eat what they want to eat. They don't sleep when they want to sleep. They don't, they don't like, do things that they want to do. They sacrifice everything for training so they can run the race. I am obsessed. If I, if I fall into the YouTube rabbit hole, I'm obsessed with athletes, training footage of athletes. I'm absolutely obsessed about what they eat, how they train. Not because I want to do, I want to be them. Clearly, I can't be. But I'm just obsessed with the type of sacrifice that these people make in order to compete. I'm obsessed with ultra-marathoners who swim miles and miles and who ride, like, who ride bikes for like 200 miles and then run 100 miles. I am obsessed with them because of the regimented life that they're living. These people are not only very self-controlled, Paul says, these athletes. They know exactly what to do. They know exactly what their event is about. Paul says, right, they don't run aimlessly. The example, the ideal is when you're a marathoner. Marathoners, when, 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 the, when, the, when, when they say go, they don't run in all different directions. Every marathoner, run, like, every marathoner run towards a specific goal, which is the finish line. Paul says these assets not only are self-disciplined, but they know exactly what they are going to do. If you're a boxer, Paul says, boxers, when, you're, when they're in a boxing match, 
you're making me nervous, when they're in a boxing match, they don't just like throw empty punches and they don't just shadow box in front of each other, right? Every punch is strategically like thrown to land at the opponent's body. They don't do shadow boxing in front of each other. They punch so that their punches can strategically land the opponent's body so they can win. These people are not only self-disciplined, they know exactly what they are to do. Why do they do this? Why do they live, Paul says, why do they live in such self-controlled ways? Why do they race so hard? Why do they beat themselves up and other people? Why? Paul says, to receive a crown. They do it to receive a crown, a perishable crown. The crown in the Assyrian games was a reef, right? It was like a little round reef. It was made of pine, right? So if you win the marathon, here you go, here's a reef, and they put it on your crown, right? And they go, yeah. They live so hard to receive that crown. Of course, that crown, because it's made out of pine, it's not going to last forever. It's going to start, like, you know, deteriorating soon. But to these athletes, it's more than the crown, right? It's the adulation and the respect that they will get in the eyes of men. Paul says, look at these athletes. They are self-controlled. They know exactly what to do. They run hard for this crown and adulation. Paul says, the Christian life is like this race. We are called to be self-controlled, disciplined. We are called to know exactly what our purpose here in this world. We are called to run after the crown of glory. Paul, when Paul says life is a race, he, he has in mind two specific things. When Paul compares a Christian life to a race, he has two specific things in mind. The first thing that he has in mind is evangelism. The second thing that he has in mind when he calls the Christian life a race, he has in mind personal holiness. Let's look at the first one. Paul comparing the Christian, the, 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 Paul comparing the race to the, of the Assyrian games to Christian, Christian evangelism. Once again, we've got to go back to what we talked about last week. right? Last week, Paul was continuing saying, right, last week's, last week's lesson was Paul teaching the Corinthians that he was, he became all things to all men so, they could, so that he can win them for the gospel. Last week, we learned that Paul says he is a free man. When you are in Jesus Christ, you become free from the religious customs of the law, right? And Paul says in Jesus Christ, he had been set free from the power of sin and the destiny of death. He has been set free from the, from the customs of the religious laws. But Paul says, I use my freedom to subject myself. So I use my freedom, I took my freedom, and I put it under the yoke of different customs. Paul says, to the Jew I became a Jew, which means even though I am free from eating anything and everything, so that in order to win the Jews, I purposely abstain foods that the Jewish customary law forbid. Paul says, in, in, Paul says so that, so that he did it so that he could preach the gospel to the Jews. Paul says, when I was a Gentile, 
I ate everything they ate. I wore things that they wore. Why? So that I could win them. I can preach the gospel to them. To be honest, I think Paul had more difficulties in adapting the Gentile way of life than the Jewish way of life. Paul, right, ever since he was young, he was, le- he, like, he was trained to view certain foods a certain way. He was trained to, he was trained to think that pork was evil. Like pork was, pork was, you know, eating pork was unworthy of the people of God. But when B became free, when he subjected himself to the customs of the Gentiles, he had to eat what they ate, pork. Food lifted up to idols. I think Paul had a harder time doing that. But he did it anyway. Why? So that he will win some for Christ by the preaching of the gospel. It is that thought that is continuing in 20, verses 24 to 27. So when Paul says, you must run the race, the race that he is talking about is evangelism. It is is about preaching the true narrative of Jesus Christ. That it is only in Christ that we are saved, that we are redeemed. It is only in Christ that the power of God is demonstrated within us. It is only in Christ. It is only the gospel that, that we are set free. Paul saying the race is about taking this narrative and delivering it to people. But if, you, but if Paul means by race, if it's evangelism, in these three verses Paul is teaching us, evangelism is just more than speaking words about Jesus Christ, right? Which is, which is what it is, but it's more than that. In order to properly evangelize, in order to properly win souls for Christ, our words, of, our words of sharing the gospel has to be within the context of a holy, disciplined life. Paul, once again, goes back to the athletes. They live self-controlled lives. Paul is saying, in order for you to effectively preach the gospel, in order for you to effectively persuade people, to be used by God to persuade people that the gospel is true, you too must live a self-controlled life. Proper evangelism happens within, within a life that is disciplined. For example, it takes prayer to properly evangelize. It is an impossible thing to tell people of the gospel and make them believe that's true. In people's minds, the narrative, the narrative of the gospel is insignificant, right? It is, it is ineffective, right? It is insulting, right? It is foolishness. Tell, tell a, a political science professor at Harvard saying that your idea of what political, like what, what will save society is wrong. It is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that can set you free. 
the political, the political professor, science professor, will laugh at you. Tell the CEO of Goldman Sachs that money is not the means, it's, it's, not, it's not going to save you. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that's going to save you. They're going to laugh at you. Not only they're going to laugh at you, the world more and more is becoming intolerant of the gospel. We think the gospel, they think the gospel is, is just old-fashioned. It is based on superstition. It is, it is, it is contrary to the modern, you know, development of morals. They will, they will hate you. They will laugh at you. They will. More and more as I try to share the gospel, the more and more that I feel people's antagonism towards it. When I was younger, they tolerated it. Now, especially this newer generation, they're offended by it. How are we going to preach the gospel, evangelize without prayer? How? Yes, gospel is delivering the word. It's true. But the power to deliver that message has to be, a, to be done in, within a life that is saturated in prayer. But to be saturated in prayer involves sacrifice, doesn't it? It involves maybe getting up earlier. It involves maybe not watching the things that you like to watch to make time for prayer. Not watching what we want to watch is a struggle for a lot of us. I think, let's be honest, we think that we have a hard time praying. It's not because prayer is difficult, but it's because we don't want to make sacrifices for the prayer life. But Paul says, in order to properly preach the gospel, you must be disciplined. You must be willing to sacrifice sleep, entertainment, to pray for these people. To preach the gospel not only happened within the context of prayer, it happened within the context of a man, man and, man and woman who is saturated by the word of God. We need to be constantly saturated with this truth for us to be persuaded. We, we first need to be constantly persuaded of the truth of the gospel. Otherwise, our delivery is going to be ineffective. Unbelievers know. They know. They can tell whether you are sincere about it or not. Unbelievers can tell whether you truly believe what you say you believe or not. It is only a person who constantly is surrounded by the Word of God, constantly be shaped by the Word of God, constantly be influenced by the Word of God, who can be an effective evangelist. But once again, to be saturated with the Word of God involves discipline, involves sacrifice, involves not sleeping, involves saying no to that Netflix show, involves saying no to certain things. To draw near to God for the sake of evangelism involves self-sacrifice. It involves sacrificing personal reputation. Saying that you believe you're a believer in Jesus Christ risks people laughing at you. Maybe risk you being taken, bringing, you, you being, you know, summoned to HR. There's a risk. Sacrifice is involved. Right? 
being, being a proper evangelist, being a proper evangelist of the, of, of, of the gospel also involves, also involves disciplining our flesh, watching our sins, over, disciplining and watching over our sins, and subjecting our sinful urges under the truth of the gospel. As I was, Alistair Beck, when I was preparing for this message, I heard, I heard a sermon concerning this. He says, in Paul's mind, the greatest obstacle in Paul's mind of him preaching the gospel is himself. Paul is saying, I am my greatest enemy. My sinful flesh are my greatest enemies when I'm preaching the gospel. That's why Paul in verse, seven, verse 27 says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. In verse 27, when Paul says he disciplined his body, he means, the word literally means punching himself in the face. Disciplining the body means striking a blow under the eye. It's a boxing term, right? It means strike a blow under your eye. Paul is saying here is, I am disciplining my body. I am mortifying my flesh. I am watching my sinful urges so that I can be an effective vessel of the gospel. You and I, in order to be an effective evangelist, in order to share the gospel, in order to run the race, one of the first things that we got to do, we got to constantly watch over our sin. And we got to bring the sinful urges in the light of the gospel, in the light of the reality of God. Look, you do not, we do not overcome our sins by suppressing it. We do not overcome our sins by denying it or ignoring it or giving into it. That's not how we overcome sin. You know how we overcome sin? We take the sinful urges and we bring it out within the context of the full revelation of God. We take the sinful urges and we put it it under the light of God. And when we put it under the light of God, that desire dissipates. Look, the coronavirus cannot survive outside. Right? They can't. It's weak to ultraviolet light. It thrives inside, but it's weak on the outside. It's weak towards light, ultraviolet light. How do we overcome our sinful urges? Not feeling guilty about it, which is kind of important, I suppose, but taking it and framing it within the greater revelation of who God is. Over and over and over again, for example, people who are suffering from sin, when they come to church, people tell me, Certain, certain urges they have, it goes away. Not because I preach the convicting message of sin. But when, when our minds become open to the greater horizon of who God is, our desires fall in accordance to their proper place. Mortifying your sin, it's not just like beating yourself up. That's what the people in the Middle Ages did. When they knew about sin, they just flogged themselves. It's not about that. It is about the way you overcome sin is becoming more conscious of the truth of God. That way you overcome sin. Paul says, in order for me to be an effective evangelist, in order to run this race of evangelism, I must be disciplined. I must be disciplined in my sin. I must be subject my flesh under the reality of God. Because if he doesn't do it, Paul says, he will be disqualified. 
The word disqualify here means that he will be disqualified from preaching the gospel. How many preachers do you know became disqualified for preaching the gospel because of sexual immorality? How many preachers do you know? Yesterday I was talking to an to a old, older gentleman and he was talking about how the church that he attended, it disbanded. And one of the reasons why it disbanded was because the pastor was caught in sexual immorality. So many men of God become disqualified in preaching the gospel because they did not do what Paul says that he does, which is to mortify their flesh. In order for you to be an effective evangelist for the gospel, you are your worst enemy. You need to be mindful of your sin. Struggle that sin in the Lord. You see what Paul is saying here? Evangelism is just more than just preaching, telling people about Jesus. Evangelism happens within the context of discipline, personal holiness. Evangelism happens within the context of knowing exactly what you're created for like the marathon runner running towards the finish line, like the boxer throwing his punches to land at his opponent's like, body. In order to be an effective evangelist, you've got to know it is for evangelism that God has created you for. One of the major reasons why God has saved you, it is so that you can be a vessel of evangelism. Did you know that? He just didn't save you so that you can go to heaven. He saved you so that you can, you can make disciples of all nations. And the way you make disciples of all nations, regardless of whether you're a preacher or a layman, it is to preach the gospel, share the gospel. But to properly share the gospel, you've got to know exactly that's one of the reasons why God has created you and saved you. Paul says, right, and Peter says, be, for example, at your workplace, be the best worker possible at your workplace. Why? So that when people see you, they will glorify God. He says, be an excellent worker. Be the best graphic designer. Be the best lawyer. Be the best, I don't know what Joe does, like, like computer thing. Be the best computer thing. Like, be the best whatever it is. So that when men look at you, they'll glorify God. You doing an excellent job is for the sake of the gospel. My mom, God bless her. She spent her entire life, I think, evangelizing. She, she bought many a dinners and many a lunches. She was never really around when I was growing up. I mean, not really. Like, she was always gone, right? And, and, and my mom was going, like, gone having meals and, like, like, you know, socializing with the socialites. And I go, man. But now I realize the reason why she did that there were so many luncheons she attended. She did that because she was preaching the gospel. She was evangelizing to these people. Every time that I go to Korea and talk with my mom, she tells me, God used me to save this person. God used me to save that person. God used me to save... My mom, God bless her, spends her entire life and my father's money to... to, to Buy lunch for people so she can evangelize to them. 
do you have? We all need to have that perspective, like my mom. My mom didn't go to seminary. My mom, like, she doesn't really, like, you know, knows theological theology. But she knows how to evangelize. Because my mom knows that's her purpose. My friends, do you know that's your purpose? That's the race that Paul wants you to run. That is the race that God calls you to run. Run that race. But to run it, you've got to be disciplined. You've got to pray. You've got to read the Bible. You've got to be willing to risk things. Are you evangelizing? I know it's difficult now because of the COVID, right? But are you running this race? Maybe our evangelism is not as effective, mine included. Maybe our evangelism effort is not as effective because we're not self-disciplined. Because our prayer life is lacking. We're not saturating ourselves with the Word of God. We're not willing to sacrifice. Maybe our evangelism is lacking because we don't know that's our purpose. Maybe our evangelism is lacking because we're not running the race. Paul says, run the race. So you can get the crown. What is the crown? In this context, it means winning souls for unbelievers. Winning souls for unbelievers, winning unbeliever souls for Christ. That's the crown. I think Paul says in one of his letters that the unbeliever, I think Thessalonians, Paul says, you are my crown, Thessalonians, which means when Paul preached to Thessalonians, God used him to convert the Thessalonians, and when Paul says, because God has used me to convert you, you are my crown. You can be used by God to change people's lives. You can, and they will become your crown. You can only get that crown. Oh, imagine when you go, when you go before the Lord. Imagine how, when, when, when you know that when God, it is revealed that God has used you to save that person. When you see before the Lord how God has used you to save people. Imagine the glory and the compliments and the well-dones that you will get for your life. Oh, my friends, that is worthy. But to do that, you must run the race. That's what Paul first has in mind. And the second point is shorter. So the first idea that Paul has in mind when he says about race is evangelism. The second thing that Paul has in mind when he says race, he means personal holiness. Pursuing after God. How do I know? Right after chapter 9, chapter 10, which is next week's sermon, right? Um, Paul talks about Israel. Paul says Israel. Right? God has created Israel. God has saved Israel, right? God has baptized Israel onto Moses, which means Moses has led the Israelites out of slavery. They crossed the Red Sea. God guided them and fought for them in the desert. But even though God has created Israel, God has saved Israel, God has led Israel, God has provided for Israel in the desert, he said many people, though they were baptized onto Moses, died in the desert and did not make it to the promised land. Why? Because in the desert, they become idolaters. Remember the golden calf that they made? 
people in the desert, even though they were aware of the presence of God amongst them. They turned to the idols. And that's why they didn't make it to the promised land. He talks about that right after today's verse. So the race that Paul talks about could be not only evangelism, but the race of personal holiness and running after the things of God. Paul is clearly not teaching that you have to do things, you have to run the race to earn salvation. That is not what he's teaching. Salvation can only happen in Christ, and that's what you and I know. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. It is strictly, solely the mercy of God who gave us Jesus Christ. That is how we're saved. But the problem, but, 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 but the problem becomes our flesh interprets the work of Christ and we twist it. It happened in Paul's day. In Paul's day, right, what happened was when people listened to the gospel, they, they're asking Paul, so Paul, you mean, to say, you mean to tell me that Jesus Christ paid for my sins and I am redeemed, right? Yeah, Paul says, yes. And does that mean I can sin? Jesus forgave me, right? Does that, does that mean that I can sin? Paul says, no. We twist the word of God like that. We are raised in a church that says the gospel of Jesus Christ is free, true. It is by the unconditional love of God he saved us, true. But the way we twist it is we think, oh, if God saved me, then I don't have to do anything for him. I'm going to go to heaven. I don't have to do anything for him him here in the world. Paul is saying that is not true to the people who thought they could sin, right, because they were saved. Paul says, in Romans chapter 6, because you are saved, you are not, you are to not offer your bodies to sin anymore, but offer your body to righteousness. Paul is saying, because Jesus Christ has saved you, Now you are to use your body away from sin and use your body towards righteousness. Paul's argument is this. If Jesus Christ saved you, you will run after him. You will obey him. That's how you know that you've been saved by him. Another example is um, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews, they say, most likely has been written by Paul. Hebrews chapter 12, Paul says this, therefore, or the writer of Hebrews says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, Paul talks about all the Old Testament, people of faith in the Old Testament, from Abraham, Moses, and on. And, 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 and the writer of the Hebrew is saying, these men, these men of faith, like Abraham and Moses, they had genuine faith. And the way you know that you had genuine, they had genuine faith is, when they had faith, it compelled them to move. When Abraham faith, he left his father's house to go to the promised land. When Moses had faith, he, he said no to the Pharaoh's house, and he, and he led the people out of Israel. Paul is saying, the writer of Hebrews is saying, if you have genuine faith, 
Like these men, you are to run after the things of God. Run. Do not think this world is a place of security. Do not, do not think this world is a place of in, like entertainment or, 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 or a place where you get glory. No. When Jesus Christ opens your eyes, you run for him. You run in personal holiness. You watch your life. Do not, do not give your body to sin. You watch your life. You watch what you do in personal holiness. And you pursue after the things of God. You run. The crown that you will get after your life here is directly related to how you live. Paul is saying we run the race to get the crown. Which means how we live in this world, God will reward us for. We will get a reward in how we live in this world. Did you know that? That's biblical. God will look at how we lived and he will judge us in accordance to it and he will reward us. But Pastor Jay, didn't you just say, you know, if you're believing in Christ, we'll all go to heaven? And true. But the reward that we're going to get is different. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says some people, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, after, before the throne room of God, God's going to take all the work that we've done in this world and he's going to put it under fire. And any unworthy work is going to get burned up. Right? So there are some people, Paul says, when they go before the judgment of God, all their work will be done, will be burned up and they will barely be saved. But other people, when they live their lives in the faithful and pursuit after God, their works will test the trial of fire. And they will get rewarded. Your work in this world, Christian, will be rewarded. That's why Jesus says, do not build treasures of this world, right? Build for treasures of the kingdom of God. There are real treasures, Jesus says, that we will get in the kingdom of God. Live, live to get those treasures. Our Lord himself clearly refers to the treasure that we will receive for a faithful life lived in this world. How you live in this world matters. It really does. How you treat your wife really matters. How you treat your husband really matters. How you work really matters. How you are faithful to God really matters. How you work really matters. Because God's going to see it and reward you accordingly. You run the race for this reward. Foolish men, they run after foolish things, things that do not last. But we run for the things that will last eternally. Run the race. You can run the race where you are. You can run your race being cooped up at home. You can run the race. You can pray. You can read the Bible. You, you, you can be in a small group. You can serve your community. I don't know in what capacity. You can serve your family. The race is going on right now. Did you know that? 
The race is happening right now. You're, you're in it. It's not, a, it's not a question of whether you're in it or not. It's a question of whether you're running or not. Are you running? Run. Stop making excuses. Be self-disciplined. Say no to things. Watch your life. Shine everything in your life under the revealed word of God. So you can be an effective runner. Let us pray. Father, you have called us to run. You have called us to run in the way we share the gospel. You have called us to run in the way we live our lives. Unbelievers think that this world is about building their own kingdoms, about accumulating stuff that really doesn't last in any way, meaningful way. Unbelievers run after trying to build a world based upon their foolish ideologies. Unbelievers run after the diversion of happiness that is more fiction than reality. They run aimlessly. They throw empty punches in the air. But we are not called to do that. We are called to run the race that will have eternal consequences. A lot of us, we confess, are trapped in this idea that you require nothing from us. We are raised with the idea that the gospel is free, and therefore, you don't, care, you don't care about how we live our lives. We are not discerning in the, with our words. We are not discerning in how we treat, how we treat our loved ones. We not, we're, not, we're not running, Lord. Correct this dangerous thinking. Allow us, inspire us to get up from our seats and run for you. Run for you in prayer. Run for you in the, in, in, in the study of your word. Running for you in showing love to the brethren. Running for you by, by serving the world. Running for you. Let us run for you, Lord. Father, please, inspire us to do so. All these things, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.